You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. to a special edition of the Archaeology and Ale podcast. For the next few podcasts, we'll be taking you through the Woodland Heritage Festival. The Woodland Heritage Festival was a two-day free public event at the J.D. Graves Woodland Discovery Centre in Sheffield, which had talks and hands-on displays on all kinds of archaeological topics. These topics included zoo archaeology, ceramics, experimental archaeology, digital archaeology, osteology, iron smelting, copper working, basketry, and even post-medieval music. We aim to explain our archaeological interests in a family-friendly and accessible way, so all of the visitors to the Woodland Heritage Festival could come away with some new information about the past and how we study it. Our youngest attendee was about 18 months old, and we also had a lot of children present, as it was the first week of the school holidays. We pitched the talks to them, but of course it was of interest to adults too. So if you have any young archaeologists in your family, they might enjoy this podcast as well. This special edition introduces the topic of human osteology, presented by Emma Green, a PhD candidate at the University of Sheffield. A few British TV programs were mentioned in her introduction. For our international listeners, I've included some links to the official websites for Horrible Histories, Time Team and Digging for Britain. Apologies again for the background noise. We were recording in the function room next to the cafeteria at the J.D. Graves Woodland Discovery Centre and it was a very busy day. My name's Emma and I'm a first year PhD student at the University of Sheffield in the archaeology department. And I know it sounds a little bit creepy and if you've been to see our, uh, our osteology um, setup, I, I, I really do enjoy working with human remains. Um, I just feel that we're very privileged to be able to do that, um, that, that we're um, allowed to work with what essentially were people in the past. Um, and I think it also gives us quite a personal link with the past um, in a way that maybe some other objects don't. And human remains are as important in archaeology as any of the other aspects that we study. And they may not look as appealing as, a, as um, shiny metal objects or a beautiful Roman mosaic floor, um, but they have the power to really inform us about not only whole populations, but about specific people. So we can find out information that relates just to one single person as well. And here we have the actual people, well, obviously the bits that are left of them, but the actual people that we're trying to learn about that all the rest of the archaeology is actually about. And through the analysis of their bones, we can learn about the way they lived, what their beliefs were, and in some cases, how they died. So in archaeology, we find bones right through time, sort of history, back into prehistory. Um, and I think it's becoming quite a popular topic as well, because we only have to look at sort of horrible histories. I don't know if any of the children have, have watched horrible histories and have seen the um, Stone Age burial scene where the narrator is talking about, the, you know, we, we just threw the chief in the pit, um, followed by a few objects and things to confuse archaeologists, like a, an arm, which I think is an actual case study that really did happen. They found an, an odd arm in with, uh, with a, a chief's burial. 
bring us closer to um, the present day sort of time team and digging for Britain um, in amongst all the sites that they've shown. They've obviously highlighted um, digs where they've had human remains. Um, we've had Iron Age human remains in a Bowden cave in Alverston in Gloucestershire. Um, Anglo-Saxon skeletons at Oakingham in Cambridgeshire and Bronze Age graves at Barrowclump, which were warrior graves. Um, so we're interested in the human remains, but also the weaponry that was found there. And then more recently still, I'm sure most people have heard about Richard III, the king in the car park. Um, I think that's probably quite a, uh, a common sight now. I think it's been on the news and in papers and things recently. Um, and obviously, so it shows that right through time, we're, we're finding human remains. We encounter these human remains in quite a lot of forms. And across the world, people have treated their dead in, in lots and lots of different ways. So um, other than skeletons, quite a common image when people think of the dead is, uh, is mummies. So who's done a topic at school about Egyptians? Anybody done? Yeah, I think it's quite a common one for people to do. There we go. I think we all recognise that as a as a way of uh, looking after and treating the dead. So in ancient Egypt, they're very elaborate processes for um, looking after their dead, involving removing their organs and embalming the body to preserve it. And analysing these used to be quite a destructive process, but actually we're using modern technology, um, such as CT scanning, and they're actually able to scan the mummy and then we can see almost pictures of what the of what the bodies inside are still like. Um, the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford has a display um, where they've got a, 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 a child mummy, and next to it, in the case next to it, they've actually got the sections that the CT scan produces and have displayed them so that we can actually see what the body's like without destroying, which is what they used to have to do, um, the outside of the mummies. Next image we've got is um, a cremation urn from Anglo-Saxon England. And then, as we do now, they used to bury people, so inhumation burials, but they also used to cremate people. And you might think, OK, if we've cremated somebody, what osteological, what bone evidence might we be able to find from in there? And actually quite a lot, because the techniques that they used to use didn't destroy the body, as our sort of high-powered you know, furnaces do now that, at crematoriums. So we're actually able to find out aspects about the person just from the fragments of bone that we find in cremation urns. Across the world, there's a million multitude we use. Um, underground catacombs in Italy, um, Neolithic period caves were used. Um, we also use um, barrows, so earthen barrows that you sometimes can see um, across the UK. Coffins, chests, sarcophagus, boats, even beds. We've even found beds in graves, or maybe not the whole of the bed, but metalwork to actually show that people were actually laid to rest on beds within graves. And it's not just the way that people chose to bury their dead that affects what we find um, upon excavation. The environment plays quite a, a significant part in this as well. Um, in South America, the Chinchiros and also the early Egyptians actually used the dry climates um, in their parts of the world to, to naturally mummify the bodies. But in other situations, we actually get preservation, maybe not on purpose, um, but just through accidental effects of the environment. So across Northern Europe, we find what they term bog bodies, so where bodies have actually fallen into peat bogs um, and have been preserved. And we also find preservation of hair, nails and skin in those environments as well. Um, the Incas uh, left sacrifices high up in the mountains and there the cold and the low oxygen environment meant that um, the, the bodies either froze or freeze dry, so we get really good preservation there. But obviously, a really common way 
as people got buried. And in this country especially, that's a very, very frequent. Um, that's how we find the remains um, of, of our past populations. Here we've got a really, really good example. Um, and if anybody again has been to see us in the osteology room, um, the way we've laid out the skeleton is like a, almost a perfect example of how we would love to find human remains, but they very rarely actually are that brilliant. Um, we can find just very broken remains, we can find very fragmented, we can find bits missing. And in some cases, we can actually find graves where there are no human remains in them at all. So the top one, what we're actually seeing is metalwork. So the body's completely disappeared and all we've got left is metalwork, which obviously we can find information out from. The bottom one, I don't know if you can make it out, is actually a body stain. So we're actually seeing the, the, the stain in the sandy soil of where the body actually lay. So we can, again, we can gain information from that. And we've got part of the skull has actually rem remained in bone there. In exceptional circumstances, we can get, we can see that we call them pseudomorphs. And have people heard of the site at Sutton Hoo? Um, so here, we actually get 3D representations of the human remains where we've actually got no remains left. So why are we actually looking at essentially what were, you know, our dead people? What, what can we actually find out from these um, remains? So our main aim is to understand past populations, not only how they lived, but why they made the choices that they did that led them to live that way. And human remains can be used as a source of evidence in a number of ways. Now, bones are most frequently what we find as human remains. And this is because the organic elements, so your hair, your skin, your nails, and all your, your fleshy bits all decay. And so we're actually just working with what we've got a lot of, which is, which is bone. And the more the complete the skeleton, the more biological information that we can find out. I don't want to go into this in too much detail in case people have come to see us. Uh, I don't want to repeat lots of things. But um, things that we can look at are the number of people. So I don't know if anybody noticed on our stand, we've got our skeleton laid out. It's actually got two right hands. We don't know why. We just ended up with two right hands. But actually, if we were to come across that on an excavation, we would know that we didn't just have one individual in that grave. We'd have two individuals. Um, so what we do is we, we count the number of elements that we've got and we can work out what we call the MNI, the minimum number of individuals. So we can also do age at death. It's easier the younger person is because um, as you're growing up, your bones don't join together. So the tops of your bones, the epiphysis, don't join to the shaft of your bone until you get to certain ages. So we can look at those and we can work out how old somebody is. Also, teeth are a really good way of doing that. If you think about children and their teeth eruption and you can age younger um, skeletons that way. As people get older, um, we can do it, but we tend to give them quite broad age ranges. Um, so sort of young adult, older adult. And that's because obviously we're not getting the same developmental changes in the bone as we're seeing in younger um, individuals. Biological sex, so male or female. Um, the best um, source of evidence for this is the pelvis, because obviously the pelvis has to be biologically different because it performs different functions for males and females. We also use supporting evidence from the skull as well, and we use what we call morphological traits. So we're looking for different size and different shapes at different points on the bone to indicate whether somebody was male or female. We actually can't do this for children because those differences haven't yet occurred. So it's something that we, we really do for adult skeletons. Stature, quite an easy one. We measure the long bones um, and that helps us because we can't measure the whole skeleton because, of course, 
there's no soft tissue there, so it wouldn't actually give us a very good representation. So we measure sort of the femur or the humerus, and we can use formulas and equations to calculate an estimated uh, stature for a person. Activity. So we can try and work out what somebody was doing when they were alive. Uh, and this is because if you think about your muscles and their attachments onto the bone, the more active you are in life, so if you're doing some manual labour, heavy digging, farming your whole life, you'll actually find that these attachment points on the bones become a lot more um, robust and uh, larger than if you're somebody that's maybe sat at, you know, at a table or a desk for most of their life. The other thing that we can do is we can find out other activities that necessarily related to work but if somebody um, smokes a pipe all their life we can end up with what we call facets on the teeth so the teeth have actually changed shape to allow for somebody to constantly have a pipe in their mouth diet um, we can't actually say yes that person was eating chicken on a Wednesday and you know a vegetarian meal on a Friday but we can use um, tooth wear so how worn the teeth get because um, at certain times in history, if people were grinding their wheat to make bread using stone, bits of that stone would get into their bread. They would eat that. That would affect the wear on their teeth. Obviously, looking at um, plaque and calculus buildup, cavities on the teeth can all indicate different types of diet. And also, we can use scientific methods nowadays and use what we call stable isotope analysis, which is um, analysing for different levels of chemicals in the bones. Trauma, uh, there's a nice example of a nice uh, sword blow or axe blow to the back of the skull. So we can look for things like broken bones, um, swords, um, blunt weapon trauma, and more recently um, projectiles or so bullet um, holes and things like that as well. Um, what trauma can also tell us is if we can see healing, so if somebody's fractured their arm and we can actually see that the bones have started to heal, that tells us something about their life. So they, whatever incident occurred, occurred far enough before they died for the bones to have started to heal. Whereas if you've got something like that that's got absolutely no signs of healing, you're probably thinking that you're looking at cause of death as well. So it can, it can tell us something in some cases about how somebody died. Disease. Um, we can only look for diseases that have affected the bone. So everybody here has probably had a cold at some point in their lives, but if it doesn't affect your bone, we're never going to be able to see that. Um, so things like this is um, somebody that's had leprosy, um, and that's how the bones have changed with, with um, the disease of leprosy. Also, TB causes um, changes in the bone as well. We can look for things like um, osteoarthritis, um, um, some types of cancers, um, some metabolic diseases like rickets, that kind of thing in the bone. Um, but the problem is, if somebody um, became ill and died quite quickly, there may not have been any chance for the bones to have changed. So we wouldn't actually see that. We only perhaps still, we're only seeing a very small percentage of the things that affected people in the past. Facial reconstructions, people have probably seen those in forensic type um, environments, but also um, museums are starting to do that now, where they're actually showing us what we think the person would have looked like. We can also use bones um, to date um, human remains. So we can use something called carbon-14, um, which allows us to say how old the um, bones are within a, within a, a brand broad range. So... 
we could also use um, the remains in a sort of a more holistic way as a whole way and look at how they were treated. Um, so I touched on sort of mummification, cremation, that kind of thing, but also the different types of ways that people were buried, got lots of different examples there. And that can tell us things about um, rituals that people had. Um, we can also um, use bones and, and human remains in a more um, metaphorical way, looking at symbolism and that kind of thing, but I won't sort of go into that now. More My side of it is more on the actual analysis of the bones themselves. So how do we use all this data we're producing? Well, if we think back to our aim, which is understanding the past, we're trying to use this evidence that we collected, so from artefacts as well as human remains, to try and understand the actions taken, understand these people in the past. So why did somebody get thrown into a pit in the Stone Age, but in the medieval period was very carefully laid in a coffin in a graveyard? So, for example, we can use data that we obtain about diets and link this to um, our biological sex data. And from this, we could see whether or not um, males and females were eating the same diets or whether there was a, a, a class and social structure around being male and female. Um, again, we can use stable isotope analysis and grave goods, so the things that we're finding in the grave with the bodies, to interpret whether or not people were local from the local area or whether they migrated from Europe or in other places in the UK. So again, grave goods can be looked at alongside age at death. So we're looking again at social structures um, and all the time building up very social and cultural um, identities of the whole population, but also of individuals. So I think human remains for me are my favourite bit, but we can't look at them alone. We have to look at them you know, with all the other bits of archaeology that you're thinking of and having a look at today in order to get a fuller picture of, uh, of past people's lives. Thank you very much. So stay tuned for another special edition introducing some more activities at the Woodland Heritage Festival. Next time we'll be presenting a talk on digital archaeology. Remember you can check out back issues of our program on the Archaeology Podcast Network page and on iTunes. And if you have any questions about the Archaeology in the City program or the Archaeology in Ale program, do check out our website. It's archaeologyinthecity.groups.sheffield.ac.uk and you can follow a link from the Archaeology Podcast Network page. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you soon. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Mm-hmm.